That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to another weekend bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. I'm Brian McCullough. So remember that long read from Friday? The one about the supermarkets? I knew a lot of physical retail was under threat from e-commerce, but do we have to worry about the grocery store too? As I said, this was something I had never considered. So read the piece because I got in touch with the author, Joe Fassler, to see what the story is with grocery stores. And yes, there are larger societal and cultural and even cyclical shifts imperiling the traditional grocery market, but it's also tech and e-commerce too, of course. A deeper dive into all of this, plus a look at the star of Joe's piece, the grocery store architect who is trying to blow up the grocery store in order to save it. Please enjoy. So I mentioned your piece about the grocery industry uh, in this week's long read segment. Uh, And the reason that it was fascinating to me is like, uh, before reading it, I had never considered that supermarkets were a category of retail that was imperiled. You know what I mean? Like, in the whole retail apocalypse, like, sure, blockbuster videos are gone, malls are going to go away, maybe people will still want to go to a store to try clothes on, maybe not. But I always assumed that if there was one sort of cockroach that would be around after the apocalypse, it was going to be grocery stores. And your piece made me think for the first time, maybe that's not the case. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're right. I, I think when we think of the the you know so-called retail apocalypse, it's it's Toys R Us. You know, it's a lot of these big um, big box stores that just you know can't can't compete with um, with Amazon. But the fact and and food has steady demand, right? It's not like something like Blockbuster Video where like the VHS tape or the DVD can kind of just be outmoded. Mm-hmm. Um, people are always going to need food. Right. Um, so in, in that sense, I think you're right that it's a little counterintuitive. But the fact is that the um, the world of food retail is changing rapidly and the continued survival of supermarkets, at least supermarkets as we as we know them, is, is you know, not guaranteed. Well, let me, because it is it is a little more complicated than, oh, everybody's got to buy their food online. So yeah. before we get into, like, um, the actual piece itself, can, can we just spend some time uh, looking at essentially the way the supermarket industry in North America has been? Um, reading your piece, like, I, I'm reminded kind of of the way newspapers used to be. Like, supermarkets kind of have had local monopolies for like the last mm-hmm. hundred years or so. Like I'm thinking of like, there's Meyer in the upper Midwest, Publix in Florida, Hy-Vee, I could go on and on and on. Um, do you have any sense of why the grocery market has, at least until the era of Walmart and stuff like that, maintained its sort of local flavor as opposed to being fully nationalized and, and, and chained up and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think, uh, you know, A&P 
for instance. It's it's not that there haven't been right, big, right. big dominant chains. It's just I think that they have uh, been more sort of regionally oriented, as you mentioned. So before Walmart, there was A&P, which is, of course, now out of business. Um, and that was seen sort of as the great mechanizer that was um, killing the, you know, the mom and pop um, grocery shops of yore. Um, but no, national chains really, really weren't um, so competitive uh, in the grocery segment for a long time. And, um, you know, as, as you kind of mentioned, the, the, uh, it was often um, sort of by city or by region, and these stores didn't really have a lot of competition. Um, they had competition in the sense that uh, there would often be um, sort of a you know a, a, a thrifty option, a kind of middle brow option, and a higher end. Right. There would um, be there would be know, local competitors like the Pepsi to your Coke in, in most markets and things like that. Exactly, and they'd they'd be sort of trying to hit different parts of the population. So you go to this 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 place for your luxury goods, you go to this place for your deal, you know, and there was that kind of thing. Um, but for the most part, they they didn't really face any competition in terms of, um, you know, external models or people who were trying to sell food in a different way. If you wanted to buy food um, for, from, uh, you, you know, to cook at home, you pretty much had to go to a grocery store. Um, so part of the big pivot that's happening right now is that their actual fundamental model is being threatened. It's not just like there are other stores to compete with. It's like it's like grocery is no longer the only game in town. And not only was grocery the only game in town, but some of the biggest companies in the world essentially were the ones um, drumming up the demand for, for what supermarkets did. So by that, I mean, you know, you have Super Bowl commercials that are advertising Budweiser and Oreo and all of these brands. And, um, you know, where do you go to get those things uh, but your local supermarket? And so they really didn't have to do – supermarkets didn't really have to do much work to get people in the door. It was just kind of obvious. It was assumed. It was sort of the only option that you had. And that's been one of the biggest and most fundamental changes in recent years. Right. Actually, I'm going to come back to that one. But let's let's kind of go down the list a little bit. So then – so so the, the, the supermarket chains kind of uh, have this sort of natural monopoly. There's not a lot of competition, really. But then comes the, the Walmarts, the Costcos. And then it's these these super shopping centers where you it's one stop shopping for everything. You can get your vegetables and you can get a TV. And so, like that's the first threat to them where someone comes to eat their lunch literally by, you know, Walmart adding grocery uh, food and and traditional like vegetables and fruit and things like that. Absolutely, and 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 you know one of the things I talk about in the piece is. Uh, for Walmart, the economics are are completely different. Like they can do things like discount milk so much that they're selling it um, below cost uh, as a loss leader. Um, so that you know, if you come in and buy a TV or you're buying clothes or whatever, you know, they're happy to give you the milk for free essentially. Um, and that's the kind of thing that has made the the sort of you know hypermarkets they're called such an existential threat to grocery stores is just there their model is is completely different so then there's other like secular trends like a a couple years ago the numbers shifted so that now americans dine out more for the first time ever um than Mm -hmm. they than they eat at home yeah that happened i think in 2010 and that was i mean 
you know, uh, supermarket executives had seen that writing on the wall for, you know, since at least the nineties, um, there, they, you know, in addition to the encroachment of the Walmarts and the Costco's and that kind of thing, um, they had noticed that the balance was tipping away from them in terms of how were people eating, um, you know, dining out versus eating in. And that did finally shift in, in 2010. And it's continuing to go in, in, in the balance of, of, you know, eating away from home or meals prepared outside of home, um, even if they're eaten in the home. And uh, that's, you know, another big problem that, that they're really facing as people, you know, people have less time to cook. Um, they're, they're, they're doing it, uh, you know, less often. And that's a fundamental threat to the resist model. So then you do have the rise of e-commerce, which, you know, e-commerce is 20 years old or more at this point, but it has taken a while for the grocery component of it to be a thing. Like, I, uh, in your piece, uh, about 3% of groceries are currently bought online, but that could yeah. that could go up to 20% within like five years or so. So this is like the writing's on the wall for, for e-commerce taking a bigger piece of the pie. Yeah, supposedly. I mean, we don't we don't really know what's going to happen, and and it's worth pointing out that I think that um, the you know the current impact of e-commerce on grocery I think is is very oversold. It's still you know a, a, only a sliver of groceries really are sold online, and there are a lot of kinks to work out um, before that becomes the norm. Um, you know, not, not just like some of the issues that Amazon is facing in terms of, um, you know, if packages are being delivered constantly, you know, how do we make sure that they're actually getting inside people's homes and not just getting stolen off the front porch? Um, but also things having to do with food safety, you know, when it's, when it comes to, uh, you know, to, to meat and some highly perishable items, um, you know, what, what's what standards are really in place a lot of the, the the food safety law around that you know sort of has yet to be written um so there are issues but that said uh commerce is increasingly uh moving um on online you know that's going every, you know all the sort of prognosticators say that this is going to really become an increasing uh way that we all buy groceries and there will be a lot of hybrid models too i mean amazon and whole foods are 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 already um uh, working with delivery, um, uh, you know, and, and other grocers are, are really scrambling to do that as well. And, and to a degree, that's not new, right? You know, we, people will talk about the milkman and how, how there, it, there, there have been models before for groceries being uh, home delivered. So in some ways, it's a return to form. Um, but yeah, that's going to be an, in, an increasing, um, uh, you know, f- factor in, in the market. Well, your piece made me think of like my own purchasing habits. And this kind of comes back to what you were talking about, about how in the old days, the, the consumer packaged good companies did the advertising for the, the grocery chains and, and they were, you know, tightly partnered and things like that. But, you know, anything that's in a box, I don't go to a grocery store anymore. If I need paper towels, if I need, you know, yeah. so in a sense, if that is the future, if my family's buying habits represent tr- the trends, then Right. The only thing that the grocery stores still offer me are those perishable items. So that if that if those problems that you're describing get solved, then then right, then they're staring down the barrel of like, what do I need them for anymore? Exactly. So that's one of the things that I, I really talk about in the piece where um, 
that there's going to probably be this this bifurcation of retail and and to an extent it's already happening where um you go online for the things online does well um and that's being able to sort of you know price comparison shop among hundreds of different retailers and get the best possible deal um so things like you know um paper towels soap um, even canned goods to an extent, um, you know, those are the kind of things that I think online will, will really excel in. Uh, but that's not everything, you know, do you want to really buy tomatoes online? Right. You know, or, do you want to buy, beef, do you want right, to buy yeah. or ground beef, you know, uh, do you want to buy cheese online? I mean, there's, uh, there's a certain, you know, kind of food that is highly perishable, um, you know, where we might want to select by attribute, whether that's taste or appearance or, you know, getting to sample it in the store, uh, where online retailing is not going to um, excel at that. And so, and and that actually probably isn't going to change in, in the near future. Um, I, I think what people who really follow this stuff closely think is going to happen is you're going to continue to go to a physical store, a market of some kind in person to get, you know, your, your heirloom tomatoes. Um, but that, you know, they're... Um, that your paper towels and stuff are you going to get online. The problem with that is that a lot of those, um, those packaged goods, you know, whether it's, it's, it's sort of like um, dishwasher detergent or, you know, cookies and crackers, that's where grocery stores make a, a lot of their margin. That's where the, that's where the markup often is highest. Um, and so by losing that, they really need to, to rethink the model. So, um, yeah, I mean, you're painting a picture of like it. The grocery, the traditional grocery store is getting it from all sides because they've already had to compete with Walmart for years on price and convenience, and and now mm-hmm. they have to be Amazon. They have to have an online component, and and then of course Amazon is is coming into their space with Whole Foods, and um, so is the is the fear that a decade, a couple decades from now, again like has happened in other markets that there's only like a handful of players in how food gets on our table. And, and if, if that's the case, it sounds bad to me, but are there specific reasons why that would be bad? Is it just a concept of, you know, there would be a race to the bottom in price, which is good. And also convenience, which is good, but like would quality and variety suffer in that sort of universe? Yeah, so I, I think there's a, a number of different factors to look at that, but um, I, I, you know, I think most of the research into monopolies, you know, shows that monopolies are are not good for for the consumer, and you know, price uh, tends to go up and people overpay. Um, and so I think that you will, you know, with fewer and fewer players, you start to see that kind of thing. I mean, I live in Brooklyn, and there's really only one. Uh, one full service supermarket within, you know, walking distance of, of my apartment. And the prices there are just outrageous. Um, and I, I think it's for a reason, right? It's because there's not a lot of other um, um, options in, in the area. And so I think that's, you know, that kind of works as a, as a, as a metaphor for, you know, if there's fewer players in the industry, uh, what can tend to happen. So I think a lot of it is, um, is an economic um, you know, consideration, but it also, in terms of the variety of food, you know, if, if you have to be, um, you know, a huge, uh, agricultural conglomerate in order to, 
sell at the scale that works for a Walmart, um, then that means that there's only going to be a certain approach to farming um, that's very sort of, you know, focused on, you know, commodities and, 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 and yield, you know, and production being like the only factor that matters, um, that, that is increasingly the dominant thing. And so if there are not stores that are more nimble and able to work with, um, you know, farms of, of different sizes and different approaches and different value systems, um, then I would argue that, you know, something might be lost in that as well. If only the, the very biggest can play, um, you know, that, that means our, our agricultural system and thus the actual land that we live on and the water that we drink is, is going to be a reflection of that. So that, that might give us pause. Um, but just too, it's, it's also sort of, um, you know, a personal ethical choice. I think it's like food is so, integral. It's so, it's so personal. It's literally what sustains us. And, and you have to ask, you know, as, as a citizen, like, is that a good situation to be in? If, if, if really only a handful of the most powerful companies uh, on earth are the ones kind of calling the shots about, about how we eat and what we eat and what's available and how much it costs. Um, is that something we feel good about? Um, and I think that that's, um, that's certainly a set of questions that are motivating the main character in my piece, um, Kevin Kelly, who is an architect um, who's really a, a kind of supermarket gro- uh, ghostwriter, and he's trying to save the grocery store. And I think what, what keeps him up at night is, you know, um, grocery stores have traditionally been a very, very uh, – diverse industry, you know, where every town, you know, every town and city has its own, uh, has its own options. And, you know, compared to something like, you know, the movie industry, where there's a sort of handful of, of, uh, of big, you know, production companies, it's incredibly diverse. Um, and in his view, that's been, uh, an extremely important thing for, um, for American commerce. And he, he fears that going away. So, um, yeah, I think those are all things that are really worth considering. If you're a marketer, you probably got into marketing because you like being creative. If you're a developer, it's because you like building cool stuff. But too often, marketers and developers are stuck with old school content management systems that make it harder to do that. Storyblock, a content management system, is here to help. Teams from Netflix, Tesla, and Oatly are among the 200,000 Storyblock users who switched from old-school systems like Sitecore, Drupal, and AEM to Storyblock. Why? Storyblock makes it easier for marketers and developers to build websites, apps, and other digital experiences and simply get shit done. For example, Storyblock has a new feature called the Ideation Room. The Ideation Room is a central space within Storyblock where you can collaborate with your teammates to come up with new ideas and refine them with the help of AI. If you want to ship your work in less time and stop wrestling with your CMS, try Storyblock for free today at Get dot storyblock.com slash ride home. That's get dot s-t-o-r-y-b-l-o-k dot com slash ride home. Lumen is the world's first handheld metabolic coach. It's a device that measures your metabolism through your breath. 
And on the app, it lets you know if you're burning fat or carbs and gives you tailored guidance to improve your nutrition, workouts, sleep, and even stress management. My wife and I have been doing this. All you have to do is breathe into your lumen first thing in the morning, and you'll know what's going on with your metabolism, whether you're burning mostly fats or carbs. Then, Lumen gives you a personalized nutrition plan for that day based on your measurements. You can also breathe into it before and after workouts and meals so you know exactly what's going on in your body in real time. And Lumen will give you tips to keep you on top of your health game. Because your metabolism is at the center of everything your body does, optimal metabolic health translates to a bunch of benefits, including easier weight management, improved energy levels, better fitness results, better sleep, etc. So if you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use RIDE to get $100 off your Lumen. That's L-U-M-E-N dot M-E and use RIDE at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. So, uh, as you're saying, uh, the piece mostly focuses on this uh, grocery store architect, uh, Kevin Kelly, or the firm is, it's something else, Kelly, somebody else, Kelly. Shook Kelly. Shook yeah, Kelly, his yeah. partner, Terry Shook. So, it's, 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 it's Shook Kelly. So, his strategy, and, and it's funny also because reading the piece, it reminds me of so many other stories like this where it's like he's trying to convince these old white dudes that they have to redesign yeah. their stores in a different like mm-hmm. emotional way and he's like <laughs> trying to reinvent the wheel for these guys essentially but what is his his basic um uh if you could sum it up like his basic philosophy in 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 his mind how the supermarket could be reimagined to to remain relevant yeah i think if I had to sum it up in two words, I would say that he would say um, stories matter or storytelling matters because for years um, supermarkets didn't have to make the case for themselves. You know, everyone needed food. It's here. Come get it. it. If you build it, they will come. Exactly. And it, it truly was, you know, put up a store and people would come buy food there. And now that's no longer a given. And in fact, it's an uphill battle. And so what he's trying to convince his um, customers, you know, many of, I mean, his clients, many of whom are third and fourth generation grocers, is that that's no longer enough. And they have to make a case for what they're doing. And it has to be such a strong case that people are actually going to show up. Um, so what he's trying to convince them to do, and it, and it has been an uphill battle to an extent, is to make their stores uh, more like movie sets, you know, where you're getting aisles out of the way and you're creating these kind of um, experiential spaces, um, you know, with a lot of kind of, um, yeah, almost like, you know, you know, movie sets um, and and sort of slogans on the wall that that subtly reinforce perception and, and artwork um, and all of these things that that um, you know are not just aesthetically appealing, but but actually make the case for um, for a set of values. And for each store, it's different, right? Like some of the stores are uh, the store that I profiled, Harvest Market, which is in Champaign, Illinois, is all about. It's kind of like um. It's a bit of like a Republican's uh, vision of, of Whole Foods. It's it's a, it's very much about like you know American agriculture, and there's pictures of um, of combines, uh, and it's just got this real sort of homespun, folksy um, vibe. But it's doing really excellent work in in um, getting look 
products from the local, uh, you know, f- uh, farms into the store uh, to the to the extent that there's actually a, a something I've never seen before an in-house butter churner, right, uh, right? Where they buy all this sweet cream by the gallon and actually sell bricks of, of fresh made butter there in the store, and so that's a cool product, right? But it's also about storytelling. I mean, there's 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 this like Willy Wonka esque contraption, and you get you can watch it work and you can taste it, um, and that's something where um, it, it's 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 all you know in the service of making the case for like, here's what we do. Here's the kind of food we sell. It's delicious. There's values behind it. You can believe in it. You can taste it. And guess what? Amazon actually can't do any of those things. So in, in Kelly's view, if you're, if you're really, um, if you're, if you're telling a good story that actually has legs and actually has products that can back up the story, um, then you are doing something that, you know, e-commerce may never really be able to do in quite the same way. And that's how they're going to stay alive. Well, it means changing everything, you know, and grocers, I think are really afraid of that. It's a, it's, it's not, it's not just experiential though, because it's like, again, you're, you're getting things like fresh butter and milk, uh, like literally fresh as opposed to, you know, something you can get in a box, but also adding these things like the pre-made meals, the, the, the delis, the butchers, the cafes, the things where, it really is, it's like leaning into the things that can't be put into a box, the things that can't be turned into an online sort of thing. Exactly. So if you go to Harvest Market, I mean, it's incredibly unusual. I mean, they have a restaurant, you know, with maybe 40 or 50 um, seating areas. You know, it's not, they don't have like a wait staff, but, you, you know, you do order at, at, at a counter. But um, it's, you know, you can have, you can have breakfast, lunch and dinner there. Uh, there's a there's actually two different bars in it. There's kind of a beer-based bar and then upstairs, um, which, first of all, how many grocery stores have an upstairs? There's, there's, um, there's a wine bar. Um, there's a family room with, like, couches and games. Um, there's an educational center where they do uh, cooking classes and, um, and other things of that nature. So it's really functioning kind of almost like a community center. Um, and it's really, really different from from what what most grocery stores offer and i think that's very threatening to people i mean you know uh the business has been done a, a lot you know it's been done the same way for a very very long time and i think some of his clients um have a hard time not only just learning new skill sets but just branching out from what they've always known so that's one of the, his central challenges is is saying like your store can be here. It can exist in the 21st century, but it's going to mean changing the way you do business. And, yeah. and he always says, you know, if you don't, if you're not in the restaurant business in five years, you're going to be out of business. Right. The restaurant business, as opposed to the walking down the aisles business, because like the exactly. analogy that I thought of was like, it's sort of like the, the Apple store where instead of, you know, uh, learn how to do Photoshop, it's like learn how to cook. And then also you're describing like yeah. in the cafe, there's people sitting there on their laptops for the whole afternoon and hanging out. So it's like the, the Starbucks or, uh, you know, bookstore sort of model as well. And, and, and it's all about like, like you said, it's it's a place. It's that third place where people can hang out. Where it's not just get in, get out. It's almost the exact inverse of those Amazon sort of cashierless stores. Exactly. It's very different from that. So there's a there's um a metric in the industry that they use called dwell time, which is basically uh you know it's a fancy way of saying how long people spend spend uh, spend in the store, and 
uh, basically the sort of logic around that is if you can increase dwell time without increasing frustration, in other words, if people are staying in the store longer, but it's not for an annoying reason, like the lines are too long or moving too slowly, then they'll, then they'll buy more and they'll, and they'll return more often. And so um, these are all ways of trying to, you know, increase dwell time, of getting people to hang around, of, of, of like making it kind of their home in a place that's where they're, where they're willing to go to, to not just to shop and complete a chore, but to like experience an aspect of life that they enjoy, whether it's eating or gathering with friends. And that's very different from the kind of frictionless Amazon experience, um, which is about getting in and out uh, kind of as quickly as you can. So I should say it's a little more complicated than that because part of the Amazon store model, what it has going for it is a novelty, right? So part of it too, it's not just that it's easy and you go in and out, but it is its own form of storytelling. And it's a story about, look how exciting our technology is. Look how futuristic it is. Um, isn't it cool that you can just leave without paying? Aren't we sophisticated? And so it's not to say that, that, um, that those stores don't have their own narrative uh, that they're uh, that they're going for and aren't a kind of movie set um, of their own, but it's just a very different kind of story. Well, you're you're talking to a fellow Brooklynite, so shout out to Expensive as Hell Union Market and Steve C Town. <laughs> and um, yeah. so before we before I let you go, uh, this piece turned me on to uh, the new food economy, which I was not aware of. So uh, just real quick, uh, tell us about the new food economy and what you guys are up to over there. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. So uh, we are a nonprofit newsroom covering, you know, American food basically is our beat. And we uh, we're we're a bit different from most of the other food publications, you know, and that, you know, we don't do uh, restaurant reviews and we're not kind of like, you know, ranking the best burgers in the U.S. What we're really doing is looking at the way um, politics, economics and culture shape how and what we eat. Um, and so that, that will, you know, we cover a lot. I mean, we cover, we cover restaurants, we cover, um, grocery stores, we cover farms, we cover logistics and warehouses, we cover, you know, politicians, but it's all through the lens of how does food intersect with these larger ideas about, um, labor and the environment, um, and race and income inequality, um, and, and, and taste and delight as well, you know, like how food intersects with culture. Um, so that's, that's what we do. We're based in New York, um, but we have freelancers from all over the country. Um, and so we, you know, we're, we're trying to do as good a job as we can, um, covering the totality, uh, of American food in all its vastness and complexity. Well, and tech, you left out tech, uh, Joe, you'll have and to tech, come back. Of course. I mean, that's one of the most exciting things about it. Yeah. It's just so much changing so quickly, whether it's, you know, lab grown meat on the horizon exactly. or uh, we've done pieces about Amazon's, you know, delivery drone blimps that, that they, that they have patents on and all this stuff. So it's an incredibly exciting time to be on this beat. Well, uh, then hopefully you'll come back, uh, and talk food tech again with us sometime soon. Thanks, Joe. 